folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Craft Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. In February, a car crashed into the building. This was that aha moment for me of like, why am I doing this? I have an MBA, I have corporate experience, I can be making money doing a job. Judd Bellstock and his co-founder Sam Alcane started the first chicha and pulque brewery in the U.S. They built a beautiful brewery in the heart of one of the beeriest cities in America, Denver. The market was large, the customers curious, and everywhere you looked, the future for craft beer in 2018 looked as bright as a Rocky Mountain sunrise. And for a few years, Dos Luces did grow. They expanded their product lines, their distribution, and their fan base. But, like the story of many of the breweries I interview, and really even the ones that pretend otherwise, it wasn't nearly enough to consistently hit profitability. So as you'll hear, specializing in unique and esoteric products brings unique and esoteric challenges with it. After years of standing tall, fighting for market share, and struggling to fight off the slings and arrows of the outrageous craft beer business, Judd finally realized it all just wasn't worth it. Here is the story of the rise and unfortunate fall of Denver's Dos Luces Brewery. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Well, Judd, welcome to the show, and thanks so freaking much for sharing your insights, your experience, and your slips and misses. Obviously, it's been a long road, and I'm uniquely curious to get into your story because it's different than anything that I've told so far, and I think fascinating. So, anyways, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, so before we get too deep into what's going on now and what should be happening in the next few months, give me an idea, like, how did you wind up here? Like, what, how'd you start? What was the first beer you ever had? Um, so, let's see. I started... Uh, really, six years ago uh, was when when I when I made the decision to open up my own brewery. Um, left Boulder Beer, started looking for a site. The the concept I already knew what I wanted to do because me and my co-founder had been talking for about ten years previous to that about how American beer isn't really American beer. Um, and that it's all Western European beer that happens to be made in the United States. And so we had this this concept of, creating a brewery that only made American-style beers from pre-colonial traditions. So chicha, pulque, tapache, things like that. Both of us had, had kind of a background that, that led us in that direction. My dad lived in Peru before I was born. His parents are um, Salvadoran and Cuban. We already drank this kind of stuff We just uh, and, and even uh, started making it uh, in, on, on homebrew systems. But uh, well, Were you able but, to get it domestically? Was it even like available for you to kind of satiate that thirst here or was that part of the reason that you wanted to do it yes and no um you could find some pulque usually not chicha uh in order for pulque to make it into the united states had to be pasteurized and it, it's very much a living product so the stuff that got imported was not the good stuff to begin with and then on top of that you killed the good bacteria on the way so and and then who knows how long it sat on a shelf we were able to get a hold of those on pulque um, and that was, in fact, my first experience was with pulque. It was a crappy canned pulque uh, <laughs> that was 
purchased in a liquor store in Chicago, but definitely not to the extent. And I actually talked to um, Dan Benavidez, who's local here. He's he's in he's here in Boulder. He used to have a company called Boulder Imports that imported that crappy canned pulque. <laughs> um, and when I talked to him, he said, you know, I think bringing pulque to the United States is a big deal, but it's not easy to get good pulque across the border. I think that the the big idea would be to import the ingredients and make the pulque here. And so that kind of contributed. So I, so I have to credit Dan uh, for the, the, the idea of, hey, let's, let, we can make pulque here. Yeah, he's the one that kind of dared you to do it. So. <laughs> it, it kind of, yeah. Back up slightly, you, you obviously have some experience in the industry. So what were you doing before you decided to do this? Uh, I was head of sales folder. And is that, was that a regional position, national? I don't, I don't know how far they distribute. <laughs> and they don't distribute anymore because they're out of business. <laughs> uh, we, we could do a, whole, do a whole other episode on that one. <laughs> they're, they're not completely out of business. They're licensing through a, uh, a local contract brewer. Yeah, I reached out uh, to them. I haven't heard um, back for comment yet. Was, yeah, so that was, we were distributing in 44 states uh, when I was when I was there. Okay. So you had kind of a fundamental understanding of how the market worked from a sales perspective, how distributors interacted with suppliers. Felt yeah, and was... I've been in the industry for over 20 years. So, <laughs> so at that point, yeah, you still I, felt I, that it was I know a good idea? At the time, yes. So uh, five years ago was a different world. The taproom-led brewery was a model that was working for almost everyone that did it. At that time, I think the failure rate on breweries was 4%. It's a lot higher now. But compared to restaurants, which is where it's closer to 20%, and a lot of those breweries were small, nano-sized breweries that were focused on selling almost exclusively out of the taproom, which my model was, a li- my business plan was a little bit different from that. It was... <laughs> It was it was never about profit. It was it was about the mission. So the mission was is to change the way people think about beer. Bring chicha, pulque, tapache, these things to to the wider beer world and uh, to influence beer consumption in the United States to realize that it's more than just Western European beer. And in that respect, I think I I was at least partly successful. Keeping that in mind, the the idea was always let's build the tap room to be profitable and then use those profits to build out either a second location or distribution, get this to eventually be a, a wider uh, vision to essentially be the Sierra Nevada of Chicha and Pulque. Since obviously not everyone's going to know what that is, can you give us a little idea? It sounds like you have kind of four main products, like in a sense, Chicha, Pulque, the non-alcoholic one, and then Tapache, or is there more kind of core? Yeah, that's how it started. <laughs> uh, or no, it started with Three, chicha, chicha, pulque, and non-alcoholic chicha. I added tapache a year later, and then I added an agua fresca dura, which is kind of my own creation. It's, it's an alcoholic chicha morada. Basically, people like liked the chicha morada so much that they wanted they wanted it with alcohol. <laughs> we added the imperials, the curados, which are we always had curados, which are uh, fruited versions of the chicha and pulque, and started doing barrel aging in the first year. Considering it's pretty simple uh, concept. And up 10 taps was pretty easy. So I think most people that have any understanding of what chicha is probably know from the dogfish head thing. Did, did the dogfish heads making one and making a video about it and getting some press, did that actually help or hurt you when it came to educating the consumer? Yeah, a lot of people's uh, experience with chicha is what they they saw what dogfish head do. But dogfish head, I, I don't think, did the industry any favors by the way they presented it, which was as a PR stunt. And to be fair, dogfish head still does chicha. And I think they're doing it in a, in a much better better way now. But that first year of making a video of people kind of disgustingly chewing purple corn, which you don't use, you don't chew purple corn, uh, even even the chewed chichas, which there are very few of. The whole idea of the chewed chicha is likely um, at least partly myth. There, there are chewed chichas, but uh, the, the, it's, it's a, it was perpetuated by the Spanish to make chicha seem like something that you shouldn't drink and to improve their mercantilism position and uh, to convert the indigenous peoples with both drinks and religion. <laughs> and the same thing happened with pulque in a different way in Mexico. There was a negative campaign that the, uh, by the Germans um, when, they, when they came in to, uh, to start Western European style breweries. The slogan was literally pulque is poop. They claimed that the pulque was fermented using feces, which is reminiscent of Augie Bush the fourth, uh, Augie right. Bush III, when he said corona, that uh, that uh, people were peeing in the uh, corona vats. So yeah, there's there's a long history of kind of making these seem like lesser beverages than uh, than European style beer. And I think in that respect, the dogfish head experiment did not help things because it 
did make it seem like something kind of a disgusting thing. Yeah, um, weird and off the side. And as far back as 3,000 years, there's pot shard evidence that shows that they were using sprouted corn to make chicha. The idea of the chewed chicha is kind of a, I don't want to call it racist, but it's uh, not accurate, put it that way. Well, I'm sure, again, you said it's PR stud, so it was meant to get them attention more so than be good for the industry, which yeah. it clearly did. We're talking about it, what, 10 years later, at least? So. Exactly. <laughs> talked to uh, some people at Dogfish Head, and then we, we had talked about doing a collab at some point, but... Uh, it never happened. <laughs> the road's not officially over, so you never know. But True. So you chose some products that were unique and interesting that kind of spoke to your heritage and then decided to find a place to put this. And you, having a marketing background, you kind of knew you didn't want to start with distribution as the game, at least in this facility? Uh, no way. Not not, okay. not at the rents I'm paying. So how did you, uh, yeah, how did you pick the place? Ten or uh, I'll tell you, the, the, the ingredients that I use are about five to ten times more expensive than Western European growing ingredients. And so uh, my margins are even thinner, especially on distribution. So I'd have to do probably a hundred times the volume on distribution to reach the same profitability on something sold out of the tap room. So you chose this tasting room based on the fact that the square footage, the location, the walk-in traffic, the parking, whatever. I'm very not familiar with where you are, except for the fact that I have been there apparently, because I've been to Black Project, which I didn't realize was next door to you. So I don't know about the area much. Like, was it? Did you choose it because it had? A lot of walk-in traffic. You mentioned that it was expensive. So did you maximize your space? Like, and how big was it? Like, talk a little bit about the facility itself. Well, I looked all over the city. And at that time, just finding a space in the first place was hard, let alone finding one with not, not too expensive rent. So the South Broadway area and having Black Project a half block away was great, actually. Finally, as they started to suffer, I saw a drop in my business. And once they closed pretty significant drop as well. So that that played into it. There's also a wonderful Mexican restaurant and empanada place right down the block. So it's kind of a, a little mini Latin quarter as well as a nice, a great Colombian restaurant a couple blocks away. It fits with the, the concept, but also not nearly as expensive rent as downtown or the River North neighborhood where all the popular breweries were, were locating at the time. So kind of a uh, a tweener space in that respect. Still too expensive rent to be a, just a production facility. Mm-hmm. But uh, a decent location that's not so expensive that it, uh, that, I, that I have to do, you know, $50,000 a month in order to survive. And did you have kind of an idea of like, in that sense, I need to have X amount of chairs to be able to, to do the revenue I need to do? Or were you trying to do a mix of to-go? You, can you, you can't sell this online, so it'd be the same license, right? Yep. Although you do sell the non-alcoholic one on Amazon, I saw. Yep. <laughs> Looking forward to trying that one too, by the way. Did you just sort of take the space that you could get or did you have an idea like I have to have exactly 1,237 feet for my tasting room and here's how it's got to lay out? Like, what, no, what I, I had a seven barrel system because smaller than that, you're doing a lot more work all the time. <laughs> you have to be basically constantly brewing. Bigger than that and you might as well be in, in distribution. So seven barrels, kind of that, that nice uh, midpoint. Um, and so I, I knew the size of the tap room that I wanted and then the, the amount of space that would be required for the equipment. So I kind of found, this, found a spot that or was, was looking at specifically spots that were that size and would work within that range. Kind of finding, finding a spot that was the right layout and open enough and not kind of an awkward setup. I, I think in all, I probably spent six months just looking for a site. And then, so we've run over and over this one, I think in almost every interview I've done, but you know, the rent ends up being a big piece, if not the largest piece of the monthly expenditures. Did you have someone to help you negotiate that? You know, most of us went into it without experience and signing leases with greedy ass landlords. Did you get a good deal? <laughs> if so, what'd you do? Yeah, you get a good deal. That's a good question. I think yes, if I, I think I think I got a great deal if I was around for twenty years. Uh, it was a very expensive build out, and I, I didn't want to sign a, a five year lease to basically spend a million dollars on a build out that that then belongs to the landlord. So I, I did a, uh, a ten year with a ten year tenant option. It goes up every five years, not as much as so. I have a uh, brewery a few blocks away that is currently rene- renegotiating his lease. Um, and his was set up, I think it was set up to go go up every year by the same amount. Mine goes up every five years. And of course, 
uh, the expectation was that rents would continue to go up and up and up in Denver. They really haven't in the last five years for a lot of the same reasons that I'm not, I'm going out of business. In spite of all that, if somebody takes over this place, they'll have a, a pretty good deal five years from now, 10 years from now. And who knows what would happen when, when it comes time to re- renegotiate in 15 years. Yeah, but at least they'll have a horizon where they know what that number is going to be and they've got a target to hit. Whereas, you know, once you get the, those three little letters FMV in there, you're in deep shit because it could go anywhere they want to go. So, and then there's ta- it's triple net. So there's there's property taxes and insurance, and who knows where those are going. Well, I just interviewed uh, Chris recently released his from Falling Rock, and the value of his building went from I think four hundred thousand when he signed his lease to two point six million. So sounds about right. His taxes were of course based upon that. Rent yep. didn't go up that much, but taxes ten x basically. So it was crazy. So one question I had about your equipment: since you make a specialized product, is there any specialized equipment that you had to have or didn't have to have? I assume you still need a mash tun, probably louder. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit different. I uh, I boil on the grain, so I have a mash tun slash boil kettle. So basically, it's a mash tun with a heating element and slightly different setup. And I don't have a separate boil kettle. Um, I do have a hot liquor tank that I can use as as a boil kettle. So it's actually a very flexible system from that respect, but doesn't quite look like a traditional three, four vessel European system. This is actually why I went with the equipment supplier that I went with. So shout out to Deutsch, Deutsch uh, Beverage Technology. This is several of my bright tanks uh, have uh, motors on the up and paddles on the inside. So because uh, Chicha Okay, especially the Corados with the fruits in them are going to be pretty thick. And so I need to be able to stir the beer from time to time. Um, in order to keep the, the fruits from settling down at the bottom. So uh, Deutsch was fantastic to work with in ter- terms of creating kind of that the, the custom equipment and didn't didn't charge an arm and a leg to make that happen. That, that's why I ended up working with them. One other question on the startup side, and I'm sure other states are similar. In Texas, Tapache would be considered a wine license, and then the other ones obviously being grains would be considered a beer. Is that how it is in Denver or is it different? Um, yeah, that's federal. Um, so yes, if you made it the traditional way. So with 100% pineapple um, and sugar, but I don't. I use a, a corn base, which there's historical evidence to say that that's accurate because the Aztec word tapatl literally means made from corn. <laughs> so uh, tapache likely had a corn element to it when it first started. One last question, and I want to take a little bit of a break, but when you decided on the tasting room, what was the model? Was it going to be primarily draft or was there going to be a to-go piece to it? Where were you going to generate revenue? What was the idea? Draft. Uh, so draft, I, I had growlers to begin with. I don't philosophically love growlers, not because there's any problem with them, but because of the way consumers treat them. That uh, I, I think it's generally understood with a growler that you need to drink that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas growlers, people look at it, they see a can. And they say, oh, it's a can. I can just put this in the back of my fridge. And when it's terrible six months from now, I'll just assume that the brewery is terrible. So because this is, was likely to be people's first experience with these types of product, didn't, I want, wanted to ensure a consistency as best as possible. So growlers instead of crowlers. Um, and then I, I was planning from the beginning to do bottle releases, but only for special beers, the Imperials, the barrel-aged stuff, things like that. When COVID hit, I started bottling everything. As did anyone um, who could, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and started going into d- distribution. There were some a couple months in there where Whole Foods was 10% of my uh, revenue for the month. Really? And and so since that time, I actually have... So at when when I first started bottling, I was just doing hand bottling, like crap, uh, home, homebrew counter-pressure bottler. And now I've got a, a fancy one that uh, is ho- hopefully going to find a new home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about how you ran the tasting room from the beginning. And so specifically, like what kind of pours you have, what the selection looked like and all that kind of thing. So we'll be right back. All right. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. All right, welcome back. So a few questions on the tasting room side. One, obviously, is what kind of events you had planned. But from the beginning, let's back up even further to sounds like from looking at some of your reviews and some of the online stuff that you had 
a smaller pour size. And so I was curious why you decided to go six ounce instead of pints, because I think you kind of famously didn't do pints for a long time. It was accessibility of glassware, really. So I wanted to do ceramic glassware. Um, And so we had these kind of, they're actually sake glasses um, that are eight ounce glasses. They do look small. So originally when we started out, it was four ounces and eight ounces. So four ounce tasters, eight ounce full pour. Uh, same glassware. I suspect there was quite a bit of inconsistency in terms of how the bartenders poured those. Probably led to those kind of complaints about these are incredibly small glasses. Like I said, the ingredients that I use are drastically more expensive than Western European beers. So prices were probably a good dollar higher than comparable prices from other breweries. Although compared to Black Project, I was downright cheap. And and, and not to mention that people are are going to find things to complain about no matter what. Haven't had a, haven't had a complaint about pricing or, or size uh, since we got our 12-ounce glasses. Cups, uh, which are, are nice branded, made, made in Mexico uh, cups that are, are really nice and have some heft to them. I saw them on your website. They so, look pretty badass. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Still have a bunch. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm selling them. I, I discounted them a couple weeks ago. $5 off if you have a drink here. If anyone wants to get some, now's your chance. That was also strategic to get people to, to try more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a flight almost in a sort of half pour, I guess, in a sense. Which I always like when I go to breweries, but I don't know if the customers always do, but you can speak better about than me. Was it, it wasn't much Yeah, I mean, people like having options. We also, we have a third option. I still think it's one of the best deals of craft beer locally, uh, which is the pitcher. That's driven by tradition as well. If you went to somebody's home and had chicha and pulque, everybody would kind of share a large clay vessel and you'd kind of pass it around and take sips out of it. Um, and so we, from the beginning, we've had pitchers. So that was the other thing was to kind of push people to share and have and, and in groups order a couple pitchers and then you, 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 you do that. Uh, hard to change people's behavior in craft beer. And people in craft beer believe my beer is mine and yours is yours. They want to have their own. But with a little bit of religious fervor thrown in there for the heck of it. So you also chose to do guest beers. My question was whether you do that from the beginning or if that was a response to um, having more options. And, and we, we started with guest beers and then we went away from it because they weren't selling. Early on, I, I had planned to um, have one of our tap handles dedicated to a guest beer. Um, and, and that's the same idea as the non as having a non-alcoholic tap handle, dedicated tap handle. Non-alcoholic, with the exception of January, is going to be my number 10. I have 10, 10 draft plans. Number 10 is going to be the non-alcohol, uh, except January when it goes up to th- third or fourth. It might kind of feel like a waste of a tap handle, but I want to have a non-alcoholic option so that if somebody's looking for something without alcohol, then they don't feel like, oh, I, I got to go digging through the cooler for this obscure thing that you just ordered, but rather, hey, this is something we have all the time, and this is something that we encourage people who don't drink to come here and bring their friends who do, and everybody feels comfortable. And it was kind of the same. If you want a Western European style beer, that's fine. Not everybody loves every style of beer out there, so I, I understand that. Now that said, our guest taps just really didn't sell that well. Even um, we had a fantastic beer, a couple fantastic beers uh, early on um, from some some of the better breweries in town, including uh, Comrade, and still just didn't sell that well because people come to our brewery for our stuff. I eventually switched to just having guest cans. Yeah, we go through maybe a case or two a month. Uh, it's not a lot, but having that option. Similarly, I think a lot of breweries uh, have taken, some breweries have taken our stuff as their gluten-free option or their non-alcoholic option. It makes a lot of sense to have more options of things that you don't do. To de- dedicate a tap handle to it did not make sense after after the first couple months. So one of those questions everyone always has to ask is, it's so I think guest beer, personally, is the right answer, but did you ever consider just making your own shitty hazy IPA? And it would, we, it, We'd have to not be gluten-free at that point. We have done collabs that, uh, that we've put on tap, and those always do well. But we, we even did a collaboration um, that was a hybrid chicha hazy IPA. The challenge with that is take super expensive ingredients to begin with, then add super expensive hops on top of that. <laughs> I think I was charging $7 a 10 ounce on that. For which, what people effectively thought of as a hazy IPA. Yeah, so that's yeah, challenging. Yeah, that was probably the most expensive non-imperial beer that I ever made. One of the things that you did clearly was to specialize, and I think that's really cool. And so you clearly built a taproom around that, built a model around it. Did you do anything specific in your marketing and advertising to, or even events that you had? Well, I guess the question being, did you attempt to bring in the Latin community more so, or was it more of a, 
let's just get all the craft beer fans to like this unique and different thing that we did. What, what was yeah, that? No, I'm not going to say screw the craft beer fans, but screw the craft beer. They are a disloyal community that I, I even did a, a little poll on our local uh, Facebook craft beer community saying, hey, those of you who feel like you have a top five craft breweries, think about those top five and tell me how often you go to number five. For the most part, it's once every few months yeah so we were never going to be the, the number one for most craft beer enthusiasts enthusiasts and by that i mean the 20 percent of people who drink drink 80 percent of all craft beer and post on we're not, untapped about 110 so, percent of the time exactly <laughs> and and i i do like them they do come in and they they do for the most part appreciate what we do as long as they're open to trying new things and aren't the like well you didn't, I don't. You don't have a hazy IPA, so you must be a terrible brewery. It was never about those people. It was about bringing in the community that includes obviously the Latino community locally, but also people within the neighborhood. And yes, craft craft beer enthusiasts, but even more so tourists, people from out of town who are looking for a one of kind one of a kind experience that you can't get anywhere else in the United States. Even other cities, there weren't. I mean, there's other breweries that make a chicha, but there's definitely not. I could find anyone else that specializes to the level that you guys did. Did you know of others that were doing it too? Nope. Nope. Nobody else in the United States. We did a Chicha conference a couple of years ago. <laughs> you were the, the only one there? <laughs> uh, no, no. There were, it, was, uh, it was virtual. And it uh, was uh, the eight breweries in the world that, uh, that produced commercial Chichas. So uh, we, were, we were the sole representative of the United States. It's interesting. So, uh, and obviously this is subjective, but I read your reviews. People seem to enjoy the beer and the product. Why would it be so obscure, do you think? Is it just because it's not Western European? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I, I very much view us uh, as, it turns out, we're the new Albion of the Chicha and Pulque world. But um, it's really only a matter of time until these these are widely accepted. Um, I've been in talks with uh, Stan Hieronymus um, since the end of last year. He's working on adding Chicha as to BJCP uh, as a, a subcategory uh, so that beer judges then understand. And I mean, it's it's one of those things. Why, why are there now 10, 10 categories of AZIPA in uh, the uh, GABF uh, judging categories? Well, the answer is that people started making them and the increase in people making them came when they were recognized as styles. So it's kind of, there's going to be a, a, a snowball effect for sure. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the New Albion story. I, I wanted to be the Sierra Nevada, but it, it turned out I was New Albion. But I, I do think that eventually uh, the beer styles will branch out. Because yeah, in 1976, when New Albion started out, 95% of beer was one style, basically derived from the Pilsner style in the United States. And, then, and now we're kind of hit, hitting that stage with craft beer, where I think it's 85% of craft beer now, uh, sales-wise, that is, is derived from the IPA style. So some sort, something that has IPA in the name, mm -hmm. there's going to be some fatigue around there. Uh, we, we definitely see it in a larger market um, in terms of the popularity of seltzers and, and now the pre-mixed cocktails and things like that. But I think chicha, pulque, tapache can step right in and be the beer styles that kind of fill that uh, that new need. In that sense, talking about some of the good times, what were some of the massive wins that you probably had early on? And, you know, we're obviously sitting here today because maybe they didn't sustain themselves, but, you know, a great event that you did or a product you just, people lined up out the fucking door. Like, what are some of the great times? That's a good question. I think there's there were a couple, two what I would call kind of boom years. Um, one, our first full year in 2019, especially toward the back half of that year, um, we were gaining some pretty serious momentum. And the, the moment I really realized that we had the potential to be big was uh, when GABF was here in town that year. And I mean, it, it probably started actually, I, I believe 2019 Craft Brewers Conference was also here. So, so it was when, but, but I, I specifically look at GABF and see the sheer number of other breweries that came to my booth at the at the festival. And then came to the brewery to kind of see what we were really doing. And um, and the number that wanted that's, that had so many questions and, wanted, and were so interested and wanted to do collaborations, wanted to do things with us, that's when I kind of got that, that feeling like we are starting to fulfill our mission, that we are changing the way people think about beer. And at that point, it was probably more inside industry than outside. But 
you know, it starts starts with that, and then the snowball flies. But of course, uh, and and then January and February of 2020 were actually really really solid months. Then of course March came along. You know, take 2020 as a write off, mm-hmm. um, and then 2021, starting when things really started opening started opening back up in about March or April. Then we that was when I felt like we really got that consumer momentum. By the way, my one appearance on national TV was February of 2020. Right before. I think we were the, one, one of the morning national morning shows and, and had a, a, a pretty long, long story on us. Um, and of course, that all gets washed away and, and forgotten. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably. A maybe. pandemic will do that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but 2021, um, you know, we were really starting to capture some serious momentum with customers. Were you doing something different in 2021? Or did you find like something that worked that was really capitalizing on that? I think it was a combination of just people had had we we kept going with uh, with to go through 2020 kind of built a, a quiet following both online and through uh, kind of public relations and, and so I think a lot of people just had us kind of on that list of these are the things I want to do once I get vaccinated or after the pandemic's over Dos Luces was on that list I mean looking back I, I I suspect part of it is also you know people weren't quite comfortable going to huge events like concerts or baseball games and so the brewery going to a brewery and trying something new on a smaller scale in a place where they could feel comfortable was a good thing um, and yeah we were we were busy probably four days a week through throughout 2021 which is why I bought a fair amount of new equipment uh, coming out of 20 at the end of 2021 and then uh, did not expect things to go uh, to go kind of sideways in 2022. So what, what did you get? First of all, did you expand this fermentation space or were you trying to do something? Uh, not fermentation space, but I so I, I limited and did our barrel aging program um, and replaced it with a clay aging tank, which is very, very nice. I like it a lot. Beers that it that have come out of it have all been wonderful. Um, so that's one thing. Got got a new bright tank uh, slash serving tank, and then our uh, our fancy bottler as well. And the bottler was intended to do like six packs, twelve packs type thing. Four packs, but yep. okay. But obviously to ramp up production, and so goal at that point, yep. I assume, was some distribution, if not, and some on-site sales with it as well. Significant distribution, yeah, especially on the non-alcoholic side. That's also around the time when I started selling through Amazon, I think. And had you started distributing with a distributor at this point for the alcohol? Part, no, or was it- no. So in Colorado, we can we can self distribute. So uh, and again, my, my capacity is uh, with a, with a seven barrel system. Going through a distributor would be too expensive. I, I can't produce pallets at a time. It's more if I can do twenty cases a week, ideally, and maybe even up to a hundred cases a week, that would be great. I, I, I really couldn't do more than that. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask about how that distribution looked and then also get to talk about one of my least favorite things ever to talk about, which is online reviews. But uh, let's take a quick break. Be right back. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standard you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Danbury at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge, so pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. All right, so welcome back. So... 
Actually, let's jump right into the online reviews. Overall, kind of, I was really curious to dig into because of the fact that you specialize and because of the fact that you had a kind of a market segment that either grew up, you know, drinking these products or had some sort of family history or whatever with it. So it was curious to sort of see what the feedback was online and it was predominantly very, very positive. I was shocked and quite frankly, a little bit, I don't know if I was offended, but I was just sort of like, you people are stupid. You got a lot, not a lot, but you definitely got some hate on the cultural appropriation side. That makes no sense to me. I don't, I was just curious how you would speak to that. Um, well, so and I can think of a, a, a couple from earlier this year that, that are likely the ones you saw. I mean, it, it's it's partly, and, and I used the, when when I see things like that, there there is one from, from early in our, uh, from the early days that I tried to get Google to remove because it was clearly not for us. <laughs> uh, they talked about how bad the food was. We don't serve any food. The, yeah, the, the, it's, some of those reviews the, they, they come out of nowhere, or or um, you just you don't you don't know why people decided. Like it's it's just clearly somebody who's never actually been in the place. Yeah. And then uh, there was one that 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 was from earlier this year that I kind of used as a learning experience for my staff, um, because it's it's it, it, it's a case where you know our customers I've noticed it it kind of comes in waves. We will literally have like. Every single table in the place filled up with single men at some point. I, I don't know how it happens, but they just all happen to come in by themselves. It's just one guy sitting, taking up a whole table all by himself. Other times we will have, uh, and we get a lot of first dates. Uh, so this, so there's that. But we will have groups that like the place will be entirely filled with lesbians. It's almost as if just people kind of travel in packs. And so generally our client base is pretty diverse. But on a night when a Latino couple came through, it just so happened that a lot of white people were in here. And I get it. That makes you feel uncomfortable. And it also happened that the two bartenders working that night were white. So to walk into a brewery called Dos Luces that sells beers that kind of represent your culture and your people, and to see, I, I looked at the camera from footage from that night, there were also a group of uh, like dude bros sitting at the bar. So I understand. And and that's what I said in, in my response to their review was, hey, I get it. I understand that you felt uncomfortable and just know that's not a regular, you, you happen to come in at a time when you were the only Latino people, but that's not usual. And, you know, you, you can't necessarily control the reviews, but the way I use that as a learning experience for my staff was, hey, Make sure that you read body language. Make sure that you, if somebody looks like they're feeling uncomfortable, step out from behind the bar, say, hey, what can I do to make you feel more comfortable? How, how can I help you? Because I, I, again, it was this was a Friday night, so it was pretty busy. And I'm guessing the bartenders were kind of just like, what do you want? Right. <laughs> Anytime that there's a bad review, I won't dive too deeply into it, but uh, I've, I've seen how other breweries in town have dealt with bad reviews that talk about race issues and things like that. And uh, I, I think there, there can be a lot to be desired in the responses to that. Rather than, you know, if somebody feels uncomfortable and somebody is not does not feel like the experience you're delivering lives up to the standards they want, you need to understand that they feel that way. Their feelings are valid. You may not agree with it, but figure out why why they feel that way and try and do something about that rather than saying, hey, you're wrong. So my question, I don't know, my, I guess my concern was, you know, we live in a country where it's actually illegal for you to only hire Latin people to work there. That's It would be, I would say, immoral to create an environment where you sort of ask them, white people, to leave. <laughs> so I don't know what they would expect. And I guess I'm just wondering if that's inherent in the specialization model. Like, I don't know if I go to a Chinese food restaurant, I don't freak out that there's white people cooking it. It just, I don't, I wouldn't do that. But again, I don't, it's not my culture. So I'm just curious as if that's sort of an inherent problem with specializing in a, a Latin based business or. No, uh, no, I don't think it is. I mean, so there's this restaurant that I've been going to here in Denver called El Taco de Mexico that has been, it's, it's kind of the original food truck. And when, when I was a kid, we went to, it was literally a trailer park on a vacant lot. And since then, they've actually built a, a physical place. But at some point in the 2000s, the hipsters really discovered it. And now it's definitely a more diverse crowd in terms of more white people being there. But, uh, you know, it happens. Uh, and, and especially, I, I'm white. My uh, my co-founder is, is, is Latino. But uh, especially in craft beer, you just, you just there's 
there's going to be a certain level of, of discovery. And for us, it's always been about making sure that that uh, we are true to the culture as much as we can and that we represent the culture and recognize every time we introduce these beers to people, these beers come from the Inca and Aztec cultures and those that came before them. So it's, it's more of a making sure that there's a recognition and that there's that these come from a time and a, from from a, a place and a culture that yes may be different from yours and and that's that and that's okay you you can still appreciate them yeah it can still be a fun fun thing but they had, a lot of people seem like they had like a, a tie to this specific flavor that they needed so I, I think it's cool one thing that i also will point out is that it is rare that i see someone that the owner comments on I think 100% of all the online comments. So that's a choice you obviously uh, made. Was that from the business from before or was that just sort of a response? That's who you want to be. It, again, it's not everybody's strategy. No, yeah, that's, 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 that's me. And I, I will, I probably take the negative comments more personally than, uh, than I should. But yeah, it's definitely my personality that I, I want to, I want to, I, Social media is a place to engage with people, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was. There's all. There's also some science behind it. Um, you are more likely to get better reviews uh, if you respond to everybody, and that certainly works in Google. Interestingly, I did an experiment with Untapped, and I still respond to every Untapped customer who puts up a review. I, I ignore what they say. I ignore for the for the most part, ignore what they say and ignore their rating and just. Treat it like a four-star Google review. Just say thanks for coming in. Thanks for trying our beers. <laughs> but uh, and it's and interestingly, at first, tells you a lot about the untapped customer. Our reviews, uh, our ratings started going down when I started responding really? uh, because untapped people, er, they, they 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 don't like being engaged. They they want their solitary activity. But uh, I, over the long run, our our rating has gone up, as whether as a result of that or not. But I do like. That people that people have a chance to realize that there is there's a human behind this this place um, and that they're not just this is, you're you're not rating a McDonald's uh, <laughs> you are rating a small business that is owned by a person who will respond to your who reads reads what you have to say and will respond. Who cares? Yeah, you're trying to make the best product possible. I think that a lot of times over online, people just overlook that, that we're literally trying to make the best thing we can. And if we mess something up, we're happy to hear about it so we can fix it. But you don't got to be a dick about it. <laughs> but Yeah, though I've, uh, I've had trouble uh, responding the last couple of weeks. We've, we've been inundated with five-star reviews the last two weeks, most of them saying, can't wait to come back. And yeah, as, as you know, two weeks ago, I, I announced <laughs> that we were closing. So it's it's what's what's my response? Well, Make it soon. Right. Don't uh, don't delay. <laughs> yeah. So since we brought that up, let's talk a little about what happens. When did it start to turn around? We had these great years and obviously COVID's a write-off year, but 2021 looked good. And then what do you think happened after you invested some money and made a plan? It didn't work out? Like, yeah, 2022 happened. So yeah, and, and 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 I'm not the only one. As I'm sure you've been busy reaching out to breweries that are closing. The uh, the 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 tap room model, I think, is starting to to, to fail. The beer beer led tap room model. Uh, if if I look around town at the the tap rooms that are most successful right now, um, it's the ones that have food. It's the ones that have an entertainment venue. It's the ones that have more than just beer. This is very different from the most successful ones five years ago, where, you know, Black Project being one of them and one that has closed. A unique beer offering that is, that is the focus of, of the experience. And that's when we opened up. And that that was the, that was the per, that was the the objective was create a beer centric environment where your experience is, is, is all centered around trying are, are unique beers and it's definitely become a lot harder to to sustain that model because people look at look at our neighborhood on a saturday we've got a fair number of breweries in the neighborhood as well as bars distilleries and pre-covid people a, a saturday would inevitably have three four five groups of 10 to 15 people uh that were doing a brewery crawl and going just from place to place and had had at least a beer at every spot. Just don't see that anymore. People want to go to one place, have their food, have their beer, have their entertainment. And so the, the taproom led model is just is just much more difficult to execute right now, uh, especially of a, a tweener space like like ours where we don't have a ton of space for uh, musical acts to set up. We have zero space for a kitchen. And even when we do have food trucks, there's some fantastic restaurants down the street. So 
people are planning to go to those restaurants, not, oh, there's a food truck, let's let's just grab from there. I got out in 2021, and I definitely saw when, for me, I went back and graphed what my average Saturday was over the preceding six months, and it was such an obvious, like, it climbs from 11 o'clock up till about 4 o'clock, and then from 5 yep. to 7, it just died, and then would come back slightly, but yeah, just everybody left to go get food, and that just... The five was, o'clock lull. And it was yep. two hours I couldn't <laughs> give up, you know, and it, yeah, I imagine that has only gotten worse as people have really, and as breweries have had more options with food after COVID, a lot of people put it in their kitchen. But yeah, how much do you think that one thing was uh, affected your business? I, I think significantly. Yeah. With with consumer behavior changing the way it has, it's either the choices are either you invest in getting those things or you, you shut down. And and uh, so so that that's kind of where we are now. You say on top of that, uh, uh, a uh, in February, a car crashed into the building. I saw this online, and, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this this was that aha moment for me of like, why am I doing this? I have an MBA. I have corporate experience. I can be making money doing a job where I don't have to deal with cleaning up dust, dealing with insurance companies. It's just just not worth it anymore. <laughs> well, and obviously you said that one of the main reasons that you wanted to do it was to make a difference. And in some ways, you've sort of done that, right? You, you've laid the groundwork for Chicha and some of the other products here in the States. But yeah, I, did, I mean, I, obviously I'm poster child for the same thing. Uh, I've been happier every single day I get further away from brewery ownership. So <laughs> don't ask me to, to go back. But yeah, I mean, I get it. So what was that like when somebody hit the building? You were closed for a little bit, right? Was that you kind of had to reopen? Uh, yeah, so we ended up being only closed for a week because luckily our landlord is good. Um, he uh, is a residential real estate agent and uh, home builder. Uh, so he got one of his crews that was working on a house nearby that same day, came over and kind of and, and built a temporary doorway for the most part. So the last just just a week and a half ago, I finally got the new door, but still waiting for some windows to come in. So, you know, four months later and still I'm still looking at plywood. So how- but uh, we were we were able to at least get reopened within a week. So what was that experience like while you were closed for the seven days? Was it one of those things that you, it just literally hit you at one point that, you know, yeah. I, are you just, were, you, were you able to just not go to work for a couple of days and just forget what that felt like? Or what was what was the catalyst that made no, you No, I was fun? here every day. <laughs> yeah, I, I was here every day because I, because the, the, while, while they, the, the crew kind of built out the new temporary door, I, there was a lot to clean up inside that I had to deal with. So, yeah, but it was, it was, it was while I was cleaning that, that I kind of had that 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 insight of why why am I doing this? Do I I'm I'm gonna be 45 years old this year? Do I really need to be stooping down and picking picking up dust and pieces of glass off the floor? Yeah. So was that challenging to convince the people around you? Obviously, you have a partner. Did you guys? agree right off the bat or did he say no we should keep going uh so he's co-founder not co-owner ah it's uh, it's 100 owned by me and at the same time uh so he has his own brewery uh that he started last year maybe a year and a half ago uh he's on the east coast he's a professor of fermentation science at cornell so he started his own uh nordic style seltzer company <laughs> uh a while ago and he's kind of in the process of shuttering that one down uh, or potentially selling it. But uh, so so he's he's going through the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I would argue the whole fucking industry is going through the same stuff. But yeah, it's a different, different <laughs> yeah. podcast for every day. But um, okay. So what did it look like then? So that you're talking about that was February and you're like, okay, because you still have a long lease. What were some of the thoughts and like, did you try some other things since then to turn it around or was it? No, that was when, that was when I made the decision because um, I've, I've tried 2022 was the year of trying things that that was when I kind of tried to in- increase distribution. That was when I tried to, and actually it was throughout 2022 and I finally did get somebody in to, to use the space as a coffee shop during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't didn't work out as well, I, I think, because of, I, I couldn't find a partner that was wanted to do it full time, and 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 be those things were were the things I tried to kind of make it so that I, I so the rent wasn't as bad, so that uh, I could increase revenue without having to having more people in the tap room because clearly they weren't they, there weren't as many people coming to the tap room, and and so 2022 was the year of trying things, tried a lot of different things. What I found was I was doing. Twice as much work for ten to fifteen percent more business. Yeah, and which is unsustainable for the most part. Exactly. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of how my COVID looked. I ended up laying off all the staff and took over everything together. And 
numbers went up, but like I couldn't do that forever. Yeah. Seven days a week and be the bottle guy, the brew guy and the tasting room guy. It just, it wasn't realistic. So exactly. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. So in, in, in February, so that, that's when I called the landlord up and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to sell the place. I'm going to try to sell the place anyway. And, uh, found, found a business broker, um, and, and listed it at that point and, uh, decided to go public with it in what, about two weeks ago. I kind of want to hear about what that's going to look like and what the next phase is for you. If you don't mind, I'd like to uh, throw an ad out there so we can pay for mommy's shoes and we'll be right back. Absolutely. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. Last and final segment. Do you want to kind of get into what you're going to do next. But if you don't mind, I have a question and I, I kind of know the answer. I just, nobody ever talks about it but me. So that same article where you talked about, or I guess somebody wrote about the, the car going through your window. I think they had asked you or something. And I think it was, it was Westward, I believe. And he had said that while you said that 2022 really put a damper on your business, you had a strong start to 2023 and you were feeling optimistic. I absolutely went through this over and over where I was just like every week when we had a good Saturday, I was like, oh, what? I think I fucking make this work. And then obviously yeah. I didn't, but I'm just curious if, was that one of those things that you just kind of like, Hey, if I'm selling the business, you know, I want to like present it positively or were you still trying to decide? Oh uh, no, no. Yeah, I was definitely. So that, that we beginning of 2023 was when I, I think the, when the car came through the window, that was the second week, third, second or third week that the coffee person had come was, uh, was, uh, was coming through. Mm, um, okay. and so I had optimism that, you know, Hey, maybe, maybe this person, this'll, this'll work out. She'll, she'll end up coming, just deciding to hire some staff and, and operating seven days a week. This, this could work out. I could end up with only having to pay half the rent. And then I also, uh, we have a food truck that comes pretty much every Saturday at that point, he was talking about potentially even building out a small space inside the brewery instead of instead of having the uh, the truck, and so you know even better a third of the rent. Right. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, okay. But what if these things don't happen <laughs> or happen on the timeline uh, you need them to or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and the coffee certainly didn't happen. Uh, we're, we're we're still in talks. I, I would pass it on to the new owners, pass the opportunity on to the new owners for uh, for the food truck to uh, to move inside. Yeah, well, and you guys, I actually cut one a couple of kind of cool awards and mentions, and I always like to bring that up because I tell people all the time I don't interview assholes who make shitty beer and ugly packaging because we know what went wrong with that. And you guys had obviously a cool business and something unique and interesting. 2019 got named Denver's Choice for the best new tap room. And that's not nothing. That's that's pretty cool. What was it about the tap room? Do you think that helped you win that award? Out of curiosity. Oh, it's a, well, it's a beautiful build out. So the the build out is uh, was uh, I, I have a friend from college. You know, I, I told her years ago. I said when when she got her uh, her master's in architecture, I said you're someday you're going to help me build a brewery. Um, and she said sure sure yeah yeah. Years later, I said. Hey, I'm ready to build that brewery. And uh, it just so happens that uh, the firm that she was working for at the time, the head of that firm has uh, a deep interest in Latin American culture and history to the point where she teaches a class. They're based out of New Haven. She teaches a class, I believe, at Yale uh, as a kind of side gig on the, this this particular topic. Um, and so to there are deep ingrained cultural pieces um, including artwork that's that's from my my parents that uh, that really are highlighted throughout the brewery. Not only that, but um, one of the things that I said when we built we did the build out was, I don't want to do what a lot of breweries do, which is hide the brewery in the back. I want the brewery to be integrated with the tap room and to that pe- for people to feel like they are sitting in a brewery. Uh, so the space is really 
integrated um, and you literally walk through the brewery as you go to the either the tables in the back where I'm sitting right now or to the bathrooms. It, it's it's all out in the open. It's pain in the ass when it comes to cleaning, <laughs> but it really presents really nicely. Um, and in fact, there's there's even there's a lot of symbolism um, in the design as well. There's this this symbol in our logo that kind of looks like a question mark. It's called a speaking scroll. It's an Olmec symbol that means um, uh, sing, praise, come together as a community. And I think uh, oh, Dr. J had a word for it at CBC a couple of years ago. And I'm blanking on what that word was, but same same idea um, of community building, um, and that's that's built into our logo. You'll see it on some of our art, some of the artwork in the brewery, but it's also actually built into the design of the brewery itself. So if you took the the ceiling off and looked at the the brewery space from over overhead, it would look like that speaking scroll. It's, it's a it's a very cool design uh, and a really really nice looking brewery with some. Some nice equipment. Uh, this is this is not the glorified homebrew equipment that you'll see at a lot of startup breweries. This is this is professional grade equipment. Yeah. So obviously, you know, just like the product itself, it was very thoughtful. Uh, you spent a lot of time with it. It's beautiful. It's, it resonates with people. It's won the awards. Would you change it if you were going to go back? Was there something now looking back that you think you could do different or better as far as the build out specifically? I don't know. Um, I think I'd probably. I'd go smaller. Go, I, I think I had expectations and a business plan built around having having it be a taproom led brewery that uh, that brought in a certain number of people every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I built the whole thing, including them. It, it's it's not so much that the equipment size or any of that. Uh, as the the space itself and the the million dollar build out. If I could have done half the space, smaller size, you know, uh, what, so what I didn't want to do back then was two months in say, well, all of my equipment is too small. I can't expand. I'm I'm stuck with what I've got. And um, you know, in a three and a half barrel brewery, you're never going to be able to make enough money to to sustain. A, a, a uh, one person's living, let alone two or three. Yeah. Uh, so seven barrel kind of felt like that right size that I could expand it and still have it be small enough that 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 it didn't didn't take a ton to be successful, but big enough that I could expand it without having to start all over again. And in retrospect, I think I would have been better off just kind of doing what a lot of breweries do, which is find a crappy space, do a little little crappy quarter million dollar build out. And see if it works there, and if it does, uh, if it if it works better than you expect, do the next one at a million dollars. So, uh, yeah, I, I I wish I hadn't sunk my entire life savings into it. Uh, is the is the short answer? But uh, other other than that, I think I think I, I think it was well set up for success given the environment that that we were in five years ago. Yeah, well. And depending who you talk to today, so any opportunity I can talk shit about the Brewers Association, I jump all over it. So here we go. <laughs> Bob Peace and Bart this year, their little party line is that uh, this is going to suck. It's going to be a challenge for the next few years. Closings are up. So openings are down. And that the only thing that's going to save craft breweries now is if they innovate and collaborate, which I would say that Judd and his little fermentation project did to in spades uh, both. So you- yeah, I, I I totally disagree with that. I, I think the the most innovative breweries, at least in the in Colorado, if not not some of the ones throughout the country, in terms of like doing really off the wall things um, and things that that could could that have the capability to really change our industry they're all closing the the ones that are doing well are doing the same thing that everybody else is doing maybe slightly different maybe they're adding a guava instead of a passion fruit but essence uh, though not real guava (laughs) yes yeah uh so it's uh i think the the room for innovation is there's less room for innovation and to to be successful with innovation than there has been in many years in this industry well so to that end what uh, what do you think is next for your business uh, is the brand going to live on in some capacity or what's what's your thought? that's the hope yeah. yeah yeah so specifically i'm looking i i think i think without the the benefit of a tap room to um kind of 
ingrain people into the culture and make them feel the culture as well as experience the culture as well as the beers. Um, I think without that, the alcohol side is really hard to sell, but the non-alcohol side, I think, has a ton of potential. And that's that's what we sell the most of outside the brewery uh, in distribution. Um, and so I'm hoping to either get into a contract or, or ideally a sales and distribution licensing agreement with the non-alcohol uh, side, the chicha morada and the non-alcoholic tapache, so that uh, so that we those those two can live on, and and maybe that they'll they'll be successful enough that 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 can then you know bring back the the beers at some point. Yeah, so you're going to be selling the equipment, the location, but retaining all the IP. So yes, future who knows, right? They may he may come back yeah. out. When, when craft beer gets a hold of its invasion and collaboration side and everybody's back into that again. Exactly. <laughs> well, so how much longer can people get your product? Where I assume they have to go to Denver at this point? The, the short answer is um, at least until our fifth anniversary, July, whatever the last Saturday in July is going to be, 29th. We will definitely not close before then. Um, and then, uh, depending on if we've sold the place at that, at that point, or if we have to, if I have a job, uh, uh, we, as well as how much, how much ingredients we have at that point, um, on hand, probably keep going. So my expectation is, uh, probably through the end of August would be my guess. I, I this weekend I randomly, uh, ran out of chicha morata and I do not have enough ingredients to, to do another batch on that one. So I did run out of my first beer on, uh, the first, not non-alcoholic first, first product already. So, uh, there is that, but for the most part, I have enough ingredients for a few more batches of, of, of everything. Uh, certainly enough to get through July and likely enough to get through August. So I'll definitely promote that obviously. And I'm going to try to get this out before that, but from your perspective, what do you want your brewery to be remembered by? What is the legacy that you want to have left behind, assuming you leave the industry? But I, I want people to. I, I would like you know, twenty years from now, when when chicha and pulque are made like the the standard styles, they'll, they'll never be IPA. But uh, the expectation is, if you've got twenty tap handles, you better have a stout, you better have a, a sour, and you better have a chicha. Then I I want people to remember that Dos Luces was the first. That, that we were we were the ones that brought this style to the United States. Yeah, I I I I want our mission to be to have been successful. I want to have changed the way people think about beer. So tough question. If you go back and do it all again, would you do it? No. <laughs> no even changing anything like outside of just the things you know no. you had to do. No, no, just because it and it's not so much uh, the the good that we've done as a brewery has been wonderful and, I, and i'm very proud of that i'm proud of everything that this brewery has accomplished but the hardship on me and my family has not been worth it I, if, if i could have been doing something else these last six years then um my family would be in a better place right now and i always tell my staff family comes first that's the most important thing your health and uh and taking care of you, yourself and your family um and i have not done that in the last six years uh as much as i want to and because of that because of that and because it's it's ending. Right. I, I, uh, I, I would not, knowing everything that I know now, I would not have done it. I love asking people this question. You're the only person who's ever made chicha. I've asked it. So how has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? You seem like you have a fairly good head on your shoulders. How do you keep them getting shit-faced every day? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure it's changed significantly. Um, I think in a larger company, there's probably more pressure to drink more often, I would say. Um, especially when you're in a sales role, but I never really felt, and I, 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 I was never deep in that pressure. I, I, I was, I was always pretty good at. Part of it was, uh, I knew I wanted to open up my own brewery, um, and you can't open up a brewery in Colorado if you have a DUI on your, uh, on your record. It's, it's kind of one of those where I'm driving, I, I don't, I don't want to have. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, not gonna have that, that third drink today. So I, I feel like I've always had, even though I've been in the industry for 20 years, I've always had a fairly healthy relationship with alcohol and, and focused on the, the tasting for the sake of understanding flaws more, more so than, uh, than getting drunk. I don't think that's changed. At the same time, I do drink a lot less now than I 
used to that that is more related to well if i have a drink that's one less than one less that i can sell i always have that problem especially with limited releases you're like i feel really guilty if there's 40 pints in here drinking one of them but when uh when other breweries bring stuff over i'm I'm happy to have that but uh drinking my own stuff i i try to limit it just because i I'm always of that mindset of, well, put a lot of work into making this. I don't I don't want to just drink it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's supposed to get other people excited about the brand. And yeah, no, I get it. Well, I'm going to have this come out probably about the week before your anniversary party. And so obviously, I'm encouraging everyone to, in whatever capacity you can, online, in person, support the brewery the last week. Well, last week-ish, maybe it's going to go further. Yep. And like I told you, I am coming to a concert at Red Rocks on the 12th of August. And I will, if you're still that round, I will definitely be out there to try it because I'm very curious to put some chicha in my face. Sounds yeah. good. And even even if, depending on who I end up selling to, there, there we may uh, we may just go through the ingredients anyway and let them kind of let it be a soft transition of uh, let's half their stuff, half our stuff on tap. Oh, sure. Yeah. Might as well sell the existing inventory, right? Yep. I, I do want to completely thank you for sharing. I mean, like I said, it was a different story than what I've heard before. Obviously, a very similar ending and in some ways a similar start, but you just it's a different trajectory. And I kind of like many people, I thought that the specialization should have gotten a better return on investment than it did. And, and maybe it did get a better return on investment than I expect, but it's not good enough to keep the thing going. So I I hope to see the brewery come back again in the future and Definitely hope that you land on your feet and uh, are able to replace all the life savings that you spent on a brewery. And that's that's the idea. Yeah. I'll let you back to kids. Thanks again for the interview, and uh, I'll see you soon. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.